Diffbot is a knowledge graph that allows developers to interface with the unstructured web as if it was a structured database. In today's show, Diffbot CEO Mike Tung returns for a second discussion about how he has built Diffbot and how Diffbot is used. The web has many different entities. Web pages, topics, people, stories, articles, companies, so much more. Humans use a search engine to find answers to their questions within web pages. Machines need to find answers to these kinds of questions as well, but a machine is not sophisticated enough to figure out answers from an unstructured web page. That's where Diffbot comes in. Diffbot brings structure to these web pages and gives them an API interface for developers to build on top of. In order to create this system in a cost-efficient manner, Diffbot runs its own data centers, where web scraping, machine learning, and API infrastructure are all used to build the Diffbot application. Mike joins me for an interview about creating Diffbot, as well as his strategy for running the business. I mean, I used to play violin for like like 18 years or so. 18 years? Mm -hmm. Why'd you stop? Went to college. (laughs) We're not in college anymore. I mean, violin is special. To, To have like upkeep on your skills as a violinist, you need to spend three or four hours a day, right? So you can't do anything else, really, if you want to. And if you don't practice that much a day, you, you just actually get worse. Like, it's not like piano where you can just like sit down at a keyboard and you can jam. Like you don't need to upkeep it. With violin, you just get worse if you don't. Right. Yeah, piano is cool because you just press buttons. Yeah, and it'll sound the same if you press it the same way, but not with the fiddle. <laughs> so I started the recording. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to include that because that's very cool <laughs> that, you, that you played violin for 18 years. And I think I'll just also lead off with the fact that you're a patent attorney, randomly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, it was an interest of mine. Maybe we can, we can visit that a little bit later, but um, most people are probably tuning in to hear about DiffBot, so we should talk about that. So the previous episode about DiffBot was really popular. People really liked it. And in that last episode, we gave an overview for what DiffBot is. We talked about it. We talked a little bit about the engineering, but in case people don't remember or people didn't hear it, can you start off by just giving an overview of what DiffBot is? Give people a reminder. Yeah, hopefully this matches what, what I said last time. <laughs> but uh, so basically we're, we're an AI research startup. We're based now in Menlo Park. We just moved to a new office about, was it like three months ago from our, from our place in Mountain View? But it spun out of uh, the work I was doing at Stanford as a grad student. And the mission of our company is to try to build the first complete map of human knowledge. And the way that we're trying to do that is by using building an automatic system that's able to read and understand every page on the web, classify it, and, and extract it into like a structured format. And we basically offer this as a, this information that we extract as a service to customers. So it's an information service. We call it knowledge as a service. And we have about 400 customers that basically pay us to access this knowledge graph. It's been almost exactly a year since we last spoke. How has the business changed? Time flies. Time does fly. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't I was like, I don't know if it's been one year or three years. Yeah. That's when we, we just launched the Knowledge Graph. Uh, it just came out. We started talking about it. And I think the market has matured a lot over that, that whole year. I was just t- kind of talking about it earlier, but... You know, now, back then, I would say we're just explaining to people what a knowledge graph is, and people are kind of looking at us weird. And now there's conferences about knowledge graphs. I spoke at one uh, at Columbia University a couple months back, and there were other companies there talking about knowledge graphs. And there were 
people from, it was in New York. So there were like people from the banks, from finance. And then what is it? Gardner recently added knowledge graphs as a category now to their hype cycle. So there's analysts now like tracking the field where there wasn't much attention on this area before. Right. So it's been amazing to me how it's kind of picked up even though this is like a really fundamental, uh, yeah, you yeah, want to I mean, talk like kind of directly. It, it, it's it's surprising to me how people are starting to notice it in the business world, but to us, this is what we've been working on for many years. This is like a very fundamental problem of computer science that we're trying to solve. Your goal was always the knowledge graph. Yeah. So I mean, back when I was working on AI at Stanford, the the main bottleneck that I saw with these AI algorithms is lack of structured information. Right. So structured data and knowledge is really what makes intelligent systems smart. And while there's so many great companies out there that are focused on, you know, um, faster deep learning hardware, right. Whether it's GPUs or CPUs or specialized ASICs. And there's companies out there that are, you know, focused on making the software easier to use, right. Like TensorFlow, like PyTorch and making the algorithms themselves better, right. People are competing on, on those models. There's not too many companies that are actually providing access to the raw information that AI needs, right? The actual knowledge. Um, there is no like Amazon of data, like knowledge store. You just have to basically roll up your own sleeves and uh, procure and acquire your own knowledge and then run those algorithms and technologies on, on your data. It's funny. I didn't realize this analogy yet, but until just now, but did you, did you ever see the company SafeGraph? Have you seen SafeGraph? Yes. I think the CEO is like... Uh, Oren or something. Oren. I don't know too much about it. Oren, so, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He's, I like Oren a lot. I've, I've interviewed him several different times. And that's like his, his drumbeat the whole time is he's like, why aren't there any data companies? <laughs> yeah. Like we can't do anything without data. Like right. we can have all the <laughs> algorithms in the world. We don't have any data. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are some massive tech companies that have data, but they're not in the business of letting you use it, of course, and they can't, and nor should they be, right? Because it's like your personal information. So, you know, they, there's kind of like these big tech companies that are able to do interesting things with data, but it's in the service of selling ads and trying to, trying to personalize things for you, right? But you can't actually, as an entrepreneur or someone that's like wanting to do something interesting, leverage, you know, the kinds of information and technology that's, that's out there to do that. Of course, the data that they have is much different than the data that you have from your knowledge yeah, that's graph. that's another big difference, right? Like, so they couldn't even offer the same kind of service that we have because their data is actually your private, like, personal information, right? Like, like I said, they shouldn't be offering that as a service. Whereas the Diffbot Knowledge Graph, remember how I said we our goal is to analyze all the public pages on the web, right? So all the information that's in our knowledge graph is public information. It's common information about, you know, people, organizations, products places, all these just basic, you know, public information. It's not structured in a way that software can use it, right? If you think about the internet, it's, it's meant for people to consume, right? It's not actually structured in a way that you could um, have it, you know, a piece of software or, or an intelligence system be able to actually use, you know, a web page, right? Just a document. And is there enough volume of data for people to do interesting machine learning operations that like machine learning algorithms built on top of diffbot data so i mean i think like the internet is is the world's largest man-made sensor basically if you think about the sum total of all the information that's on the internet if you were to print out all the web pages that are on the internet 
I mean, it would it would cover over the Earth's surface like mul multiple times over, right? <laughs> and so, and it's largely once you encode information into that format of a page or a blog post or a news article or a profile online, it's kind of locked into that medium, right? It's not repurposable or usable by an intelligent system later on, right? And unless it's been structured in a way, kind of like a database format, right? So the amount of information on the web, I think vast surpassed like any other repository, man-made repository of information that's been created, like by any kind of private or, or public entity, right? Because it's the entire community of all the people around the world building the pages on the web. And so that's why that was our natural starting point to achieve our mission, right? We, the best place if you want to build a comprehensive map of human knowledge is to start out with that, that kind of public resource that we have, which is the internet. Do you feel like the business is, your business is accelerating or do you feel like it's just been like a, like a slow but steady linear growth curve? So I think that, I think it's still early innings, right? Like despite what I said earlier that people are actually starting to recognize that word. I mean, the, the vast majority of, you know, uh, business people out there, organizations out there, they're, they're not using that yet, right? So it's still kind of in the early majority, I would say. Our business itself, I think it's pretty unique in that we have a profitable AI company, which is something that not like a lot, I think not a lot of AI startups can say. And it's because really the only operating cost of an AI company like ours is just like bandwidth and electricity. And they're paying for the outputs that this AI system is producing. So it can be an incredible business at scale. And it's already profitable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we can talk a little bit more about the business later, but the web, it's always changing. And a lot of data that's getting generated today is on social networks. And social networks are this darker part of the web. I mean, I don't mean darker, like negatively. I mean, like, like it's harder to access. Can yeah, harder you... for search engines to crawl, basically. Right. Yeah. Can you index that stuff? So we don't crawl any parts of the private web, right? Things that behind a login, like social media, stuff happening in Messenger. We're focusing more just like on like public common information, right? Just to stay away from privacy issues and things like that. And there's already plenty there, just in terms of the public information that hasn't been structured, right? So I don't feel like we need to go into that space yet of trying to derive structure from like people's private messages and stuff like that. You know, people are welcome to apply um, off-the-shelf AI techniques and tools to those if they, if they would like to, right, for their business. But I don't think it needs to be part of our business right now. What's the most surprising thing you've seen somebody build on DiffBot? We get surprised all the time about interesting ways people are using our service because like a lot of our customers come in inbound. They come to our site, they sign up and they start using our service, right? So in terms of the categories of customers that uh, we see, I mentioned we have, you know, like about 400 or so companies that use it. There's people building consumer experiences using our data and there's people building enterprise experiences, right? On the consumer side, there's basically major search engines that use DiffBot and uh, app companies, consumer app companies, right? So in terms of major search engines, we have uh, companies like DuckDuckGo, like Bing, like Yandex, that are basically using DiffBot to build these like knowledge panels. Have you seen those things on the kind of the right side of a, of a search oh, query? Oh, yeah. yeah, just or like Google see, like, article tiles. Yeah. So they're essentially doing something like that, but the other search engines are doing that using DiffBot. And so you see product tiles, you see like article tiles, basically nicer ways of displaying the search result because you have structured data, right? Instead of just like a title and snippet, right? Kind of those plain search results. So there's that kind of customer. DuckDuckGo has a similar thing, use case where they're using DiffBot. And then there's consumer app companies, companies like Snapchat, companies like Instapaper, companies like Zola. 
And they're using our articles. They're using, we power the articles feature inside Snapchat. So inside the backend for Instapaper, when you Instapaper an article, it's basically sending that URL to our algorithm. We're analyzing that article page. We're parsing it out as a clean article. And that's what gets pushed to your Kindle. And there's like a wedding planning app, which is you know, totally unexpected where if you're building a wedding registry uh, and you just put in some product links, it basically built, it pulls in from Diffbot, like the price and the picture of the product and the, the category of the product. And all of a sudden you have a, a registry, right? Uh, like kind of a shopping cart built out from random web pages on, on the web. And then enterprise experiences, I'm talking about just really common business things like sales. I want to find more customers. I can query the knowledge graph. So help me identify, you know, all uh, companies that have between 100 and 200 employees that are in, uh, let's say, my selling geography, help me identify who the CMO is, help me identify if it's in a certain sector, right, like tech or agriculture. Those are essentially you can query the knowledge graph and you get back all the entities in the world that match that. For recruiting, I want to find people with certain skills, right, or I want to do diversity-based recruiting. I can essentially target and really specialize and personalize my outreach based on querying the knowledge graph just for those people with those specialized skills. We've actually hired a lot of the people at Diffbot that we've discovered through our knowledge graph because <laughs> we have certain skills that we have that, you know, there's only probably a dozen people in the world that have those skills. Like what? So in the area of natural language processing, there are certain special sub-problems of natural language processing like relation extraction, entity linking, co-reference resolution. These are basically people that they've done their PhD thesis in that, and we've only found out about it because we were looking for that particular thing in the knowledge graph. Wow. <laughs> I bet they're pretty happy to come work for you then. Well, yeah. I mean, Diffbot's the best place in the world if you are working on that topic. I mean, think about it because you can essentially apply the fruits of your PhD research to the largest scale NLP problem uh, applied to the entire surface of the web, like all the documents on the web, right? And help other people and develop help other NLP applications. And help us get our knowledge graph to be very accurate and help us make money. So it's like directly contributing to the business. And so it's super impactful. When a, a company like DuckDuckGo uses you to make those little sidebar things, this is like you know, when, when you search, on, search for George Clooney on Google... Yeah. And you see like the the sidebar, and it's like, you know, a picture of George Clooney, movies that George Clooney was in, things like that. Yeah. Does DuckDuckGo eagerly fetch everything about the internet and cache that stuff, or do they just do it on the fly when you make a query? Yeah. So, uh, so there's only three companies in the United States that actually crawl the entire web. One of them is Google. One of them is Bing, and and the third one is Diffbot. Yahoo. Wait, wait, wait. By the way, how do you know that? It's to the best of my knowledge, right? Just because I've been working in the search <laughs> industry for quite a while. But if you know the history of it, you know that uh, Yahoo, for example, I think like in around 2010 or so, basically like outsourced their crawl of the web to Bing. So they're basically just, they're not crawling the web themselves. They're taking the, they're using the Bing API and then they're like re-ranking and, and then resorting their results. The similar thing for DuckDuckGo. So I think they use the, the Bing API and they use uh, probably other APIs and then they, they basically query those on the back end, and then they blend them together, and then they resurface it. They're not themselves crawling the web. But Facebook, um, <clears throat> you'd assume Facebook also crawls the web. So Facebook, I do have some knowledge of, of Facebook, and I don't think they are proactively crawling the entire web in the same way that Google is. They're fetching pages very targeted. So if you share a link in Facebook, right, and then you see it builds like a little preview of that link, then they're fetching that particular link, but it's not a crawl, right? It's not like they're spidering and then going from that link to all the pages in the web. You don't think so? 
No, I don't think so. Hmm. You got to imagine. I mean, all the the ad infrastructure they have. There's got to be some upside to them doing that. Maybe not. I guess hard to know. Anyway, sorry, to, sorry to distract you. Okay, so uh, continue with the, uh, you know. Okay, so so not anybody else, or most people don't don't index the web. We know that. But like when people are consuming your like that that API, like for grabbing data. Do people like grab your entire knowledge graph, or do they use it on the fly? That would be, cost, too, be too expensive. Yeah. That'd be too expensive. It would take okay. them a, a couple of years to download our knowledge graph. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> and then it would be out of date by the time they finish downloading it because it would ref- it's refreshing all the time. Mm-hmm. So it'd, be, it'd just be like saying, "Let's download Google." Right? It wouldn't be that useful because actually, it's the the utility of it is that it's continually refreshing. Right. So what people do is they, uh, there's a couple ways people use our products. So they can pass us individual URLs, right? So they can say, here's like an article page. Here's a product page. Here's a person page. I want to convert this from a URL into a, a JSON object that is structured, right? So in, instead of just HTML, it's here's the article title and author and clean text and the entities and uh, people and organizations that are mentioned in the article, the image of the article, the caption, the comments, all parsed out cleanly. Or if it's a product page, then it's here's the product's price and here's the SKU and MPN and here's the the weight and the shipping cost and the megapixels, like all those various um, structured information about that product, the picture. So that's that's one way of using it. You pass in a page directly and, you, and then you run that algorithm on that page. The second way is you can crawl entire domains, right? So you can say, I want all of the products from Home Depot, J, J. Crew, Macy's, you know, Banana Republic, Gap, and then you essentially get back the entire product catalog from all those sites. And the third way is by querying our knowledge graph. So that's where it's not specific to a site or a URL, but you're just expressing what you want in the Diffbot query language. So you're saying, I want to identify, you know, all software in- engineers that live in San Francisco that live uh, five miles from the Twitter headquarters. So you can essentially form that query inside, you know, our, our DQL, the default query language, and it'll give you back the set of all people that match that query. I suppose it's worth pointing out here that you manage your own data center infrastructure as well as yeah. using some AWS infrastructure. Exactly. So you, yeah. We have hybrid cloud. Hybrid cloud. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about how you use on-prem and cloud resources. Yeah, I mean, a big reason is just because of the kind of workload we have, machine learning workload and um, costs, really, right? So the, one of the reasons we, we, we build our own metal is because, you know, like our standard node that builds our knowledge graph has, you know, it has, uh, you know, maybe about 40 cores, like a terabyte of RAM, you know, it has 32, four terabyte SSDs rated together. Those are big instances that they don't offer readily, you know, like on AWS. And if they did, it would be, it would be very expensive, right? So we've done like that kind of cost benefit analysis and the payback period is actually quite good. The other reason is that we crawl the web. So uh, when you're crawling the web that you're using a lot of inbound bandwidth and it's actually quite expensive. Inbound bandwidth is on, you know, AWS, GCE, uh, any of these things where if you just lease like your own dedicated line, a data center, it's a, it's an unmetered untapped line. So I don't think you want to crawl the web from, you know, one of these uh, pay as you go services. However, we do use AWS for auto scaling. So that's where, you know, I mentioned one of the services that we offer where we'll actually analyze the URL or, or page that you send us on demand. That service, we could get like a lot of demand or a lot of uh, requests you know, for, for URLs, it could be really spiky at different periods of the day, right? Like people could send a huge, you know, um, batch of URLs and then the amount of capacity we'd need to handle processing those uh, would rapidly increase 
you know, at a point in time, right? And so we've uh, built our system so we have detectors that'll detect high CPU lo load during those periods of time, and then we'll automatically spin up instances on other cloud services to catch that load, and then spin them back down when that spike subsides. So auto scaling, I think, provides us uh, a good way to handle that those kind of on-demand APIs. How aggressively do you replicate the database? So we don't have a lot of storage to replicate the knowledge graph too many times. But the good thing about analyzing parts of the web is uh, you can always recreate it <laughs> basically from that page again. So there's actually, you know, like, as you might imagine, there's lots of different systems, you know, at Diffbot, uh, there's systems for the customer crawls or system for our, our crawls. So they have different amounts of replication and redundancy factors. Um, all of the um, things that are kind of in the critical path of the extraction and stuff are all have like, you know, multiple load balancers on the front end. So it can survive any single points of failure. And, you know, they, they're proxying to multiple backends in a farm, right? So each of the machines in the farm is able to handle like certain kinds of requests. Do you have to keep this knowledge graph in memory or can you keep it on disk? Right now we're keeping it on disk. It's too big to to fully keep it in memory right now, but that would be great. Like we're really, you know, I've been tracking like certain technologies. I don't know if you've been following like Intel, like X point, like their cross point memory, right? It's basically like kind of a mix between an SSD and Ram, right? It basically, uh, their current incarnation, just, you know, you can, you can just put it inside a PCIe slot, but it, the price performance is not quite there yet, but we really are, you know, hoping one day we can fit something like that into memory. So that would enable like a new class of kinds of queries that could run on it. We had to make certain trade-offs basically in the kinds of queries that you can run on the knowledge graph, you know, due to the fact that it's not all in memory. Do you a sense for how much, I mean, I don't know if you did the math, but do you know how much more expensive it would be to keep it in memory, to access it in memory? Um, I don't know it offhand, but yeah, I should, do, I should do that calculation again. It's been a while since I did that calculation, but it, it would be... Yeah, probably a couple factors more expensive, and then you'd have to re-architect some things, right, to keep it loaded in memory. But it's interesting because, it, I mean, so if I query DuckDuckGo, it's going to hit the knowledge graph fast enough to respond. I mean, it must not, it, it can't be that slow, right? Oh, DuckDuckGo does call us in real time. So they send us um, basically big batches of URLs every night, and then they index the diffbot response inside their index. Oh, oh, okay, I got it. Interesting. So if I make a query for George Clooney and George Clooney's not in the cache, I guess they could just not return. They could just yeah. like not. If they haven't indexed it, you know, uh, George Clooney yet, then they're just not going to have a result for that yet. And right? that's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's basically coupled to their indexing, right? Like if they have a page and then they can have the diffbot indexing on top of it, that indexing is happening in an offline operation that's separate from the, the query path, right? Right. So I can imagine, have you thought about what kinds of applications you can and can't build with like people, what, what applications would people be enabled to build if you could offer the, the latency of memory, of memory. rather than disk? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So one thing that would be possible with the latency of memory is the latency of the updates would be much faster. So you could almost like update an entity in real time much faster. Like imagine a news event, right, where, you know, like a couple months back, it seems like almost every day now there's some like mass shooting, right? And then you have basically this unknown, basically person that was 
relatively unknown prior to that event, you know, has no web presence. Suddenly their name is being mentioned everywhere. There's something associated with them. Like this is a high school student. These are certain attributes. It becomes like an entity from, from out of nowhere. Right. So that's the kind of thing where you can imagine an AI system like ours that's constantly reading all of the articles on the, the internet could form a very complete profile of that shooter minutes from when, when the event actually occurred, right? If it could be kept in memory, which could be very helpful, right? To like law enforcement and, and, and folks that study that kind of thing. So that kind of real-time application for Wall Street, uh, for trading and stuff, you know, that there are certain applications that are enabled if you think about like, you know, high frequency trading and things like that. Also the kinds of queries, the complexity of the query. So uh, I mentioned earlier, we have to make these trade-offs. So one of the trade-offs we made is we basically, it's a graph structure, right? But we don't actually use one of the off-the-shelf graph databases. We ended up denormalizing the data basically like two edges out. And then, so you can only execute queries that basically do joins that are like two edges out, right? So I can say, I want people that are software engineers that work at a company that is based in San Francisco, you know, that is an AI company, right? So that kind of thing is joining maybe the people and the organization, you know, tables, right? But it's not going like maybe uh, five, four or five joins out, right? And so we wouldn't be able to do that yet in our, in our thing. But if you could keep it all in RAM, right, then you could execute queries that are much deeper. It's that, that actually are almost like traversing the graph. So you can say, you know, what's the shortest path between these two cities? And it could like, the query could actually try to calculate shortest path in the graph and things like that, right? Or things like computing page rank, right? Where it's like a really a graph algorithm. On the fly. Yeah, on the fly can, can be enabled uh, computing, you know, some kind of social rank or, or some kind of um, trust, right? Or um, relevance of certain things could be done on the fly. In terms of the infrastructure that you actually do have, are you using stuff like Kafka and, uh, you know, streaming frameworks, Spark? We're keeping it pretty bare bones right now. So it's Python scripts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the real thing. It's all, it's all Python and Bash. Yeah, if you ask any, any DevOps person. So no, the way it's organized is we have a variety of different farms, like I mentioned, right? So there's, there's farms, which is basically a, a set of machines that perform the same role right in front of a load balancer. And there's a set of farms that do like the web page extraction. There's a set of farms that do rendering. So we actually execute each page inside a full rendering engine, right? Which is different than some crawlers. Uh, so it's actually like kind of interacting with the page like a video game and dumping out all the visual information out of the page, all the pixels, the RGB alpha values and stuff like that. So we have a, a bank of machines that's just doing rendering and dumping out all those pixels for the machine learning algorithm. We have a bank of machines that's just doing natural language processing, that's taking in all the text across all the different languages on the web and understanding the meaning of English and, and, and Spanish and, and Japanese and Russian and German and all those different languages. We have a batch of machines that's just doing image processing. It's looking at pictures of products, looking at pictures of cats, looking at pictures of, of people and, just, and trying to figure out what's inside these images, right? And then uh, we like to use Nginx to, in front of these, these banks of machines and some of them have auto scaling. And then some of them are just regular sort of standard deployed Java programs. Other ones are Python programs. Uh, the crawling is C++. And then we're using, you know, things like containers and like Docker and stuff for certain of these farms to, to manage the images and things. Did you, did you start using Kubernetes? You, any infrastructure management? Um, no, we haven't, we haven't uh, implemented Kubernetes yet, but we're always looking for ways to simplify 
would it would it actually simplify things for you? Would it improve that? Because I know there's probably many organizations who adopt Kubernetes, and maybe it's like not really additive that much. Yeah, it seems like there's been mixed results depending on the organization. Right, right? that's the reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean. We've looked into it from time to time. I mean, our culture is we make decisions based on the engineering and the physics, right? Like, does it actually solve a problem? Does it simplify things? I love it. I love <laughs> yeah, it. It's all about measuring, the, yeah, to see if it can actually lead to some benefit. I love it. That's like a com- that's a. I think that's a common. It's an epidemic of of uh, just like, oh, this is a shiny new thing that's trendy, and like jump on that, and like I'm a subject to that kind of trend following and trend following is anybody but it's like such a useful engineering reminder always to take a step back and ask if does this thing actually solve my problem i mean i think i have a bias for using tried and true technologies and we want to innovate on the stuff that we're innovating on right and not also you know kind of take on the an additive risks of like other people's innovations as well you know so you know like the crawling of the web that we have for example that was most largely written by our vp of search matt wells he's the founder of the gigablast search engine and that's all in basically raw C++ code. There's no external dependencies. You type make and it builds a single binary and they all com- all the binaries communicate to each other and it uses UDP to broadcast for to, to talk to each other. It doesn't use many external dependencies or fancy f- frameworks at all. It, it even has its own Im- implementation of malloc for memory allocation. <laughs> it has its I'm own not going to going of, that of far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you don't have to worry about other stuff breaking your stuff. <laughs> is, that, is that common in in very do, in domain specific applications, like b- implementing your own malloc? It's not very common, as far as I know, in other in other groups. But but it, it served an actual purpose. It wasn't just like to show off. It was so that he could actually, at a very fine grain, determine like exactly how each bit of memory is used inside that program, so the program could inspect itself, right? And then, I mean, that's what you need when you're building something as complicated as like a web crawler. That's it's so different than most of the companies I interview are built on the cloud and the infrastructure. A lot of it is it's is this comp this composition like composing, choosing from this buffet of AWS services and APIs that are out there, and that's an awesome way of building. But it's so different than what you're describing. I think the right choice depends on the kind of company you are, right? Like if you're building something that's like a consumer application, right? Where the primary risk to you as an entrepreneur is the the, the kind of the market risk of your product, right? Or, or service. The easiest way to, to get started is to use one of these cloud services and get a stack running, right? If your primary value or competency that you're offering is actually the infrastructure and then the engineering and the, the accuracy of the data and things like that, right? Like think about Google. They're not using AWS or something like that, they have their own data center, right? Because that's their primary competency, right? At least that's the way I think about it. And in the limit, if Knowledge Graph is on Gartner, that probably means, are you starting to get competitors? Are there competitors? So the word Knowledge Graph is becoming, yeah, like a more popularized word now. Um, There's a set of companies that offer graph databases. That's not exactly what we, we are. There's a set of companies where they're kind of like consultants. They'll go into your you know, your, your enterprise and help you uh, get your data into a knowledge graph format to, to build like your own internal knowledge graph so that you can kind of reap the benefits of breaking apart those like internal data silos, right? Where you have like a, a better coherent schema, right? For your organization's data. So we're not in that business either. We're in the business of basically providing a knowledge graph, right? Like providing the actual graph, the data itself, right? So there's not, I would say many 
people that are in that business that, that we're in. If you think about knowledge graphs, what most people think about is like the Google knowledge graph, right? The Bing knowledge graph. There are open source knowledge graphs like Wikipedia and Wikidata, right? And DBpedia. And so you can use like, you know, Wikidata, which is basically under the umbrella of the Wikimedia organization. But Google and Bing, they, they don't offer their knowledge graphs like as a service that you can benefit from, right? They, they keep them for themselves. It's kind of surprising. Are you surprised Amazon hasn't gotten into this business yet? It's hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could say it, that about any business that Amazon hasn't gotten into. Yeah, yet. that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I, I'm sure it's coming. Kind of surprised. I'm sure it's, it's coming. coming. Yeah, it's coming. But yeah, I mean, your approach to pricing, I bet, is going to be a good. Uh, like the fact that you've kept your costs down, like you're probably going to be well positioned. Even if Amazon stood up something like this, you'd probably be well positioned to defend yourself. Well, we have Amazon as a customer, so I mean, we're happy being a vendor to them right now. There's actually uh, multiple groups in Amazon that use uh, that Seriously. use. Seriously, yeah. Any case studies out there? Or you can't say. I mean, there's not a lot that I can talk about. I can probably speak in just kind of generalities, right? Okay. So they, sure. There's Amazon is kind of like a conglomerate, right? If you imagine there's uh, there's a team that's working on the actual marketplace, right? Where they're trying to get more products onto the marketplace, trying to onboard more merchants to the par- marketplace. There's AWS, which is trying to, you know, obviously build infrastructure and get more customers to their cloud service. And they're trying to find their sales team is trying to find more companies that could use AWS. And then there's Alexa. So they're building um, intelligent systems. And and if you think about about intelligent systems, uh, they're not really intelligent. I mean, because, and the reason I think is because they don't have a lot of knowledge, right? So they have little bits of knowledge that are hard coded in it. And then you have to speak like a robot basically to, to interface with it, right? Instead of being adapting to you and the way you speak, right? And, and actually knowing how to answer most questions. That's a category that we're seeing a lot of uptick in as well. There's a lot of people trying to build intelligent systems and all of those systems you can think about, they don't want to build up their own knowledge graph. I mean, just to, they don't want to crawl the whole web just so that they can build a, a, a chatbot or an intelligent system. And so we're a natural partner to like a lot of those companies. That's epic. What if you offered that as like a, a SaaS product? Like, hey, DiffBot. Like, yeah. that'd be cool. Like, what if I could just have a, a device in yeah. my apartment that was like, you know, I can go, hey, DiffBot. And yeah. like at the end of every month, I get charged just a little <laughs> bit, you know, yeah. based on how many queries. Yeah. That'd be cool. I think that would be awesome. Uh, we're not quite there yet. I mean, we want to, we're enabling our customers to build a lot of things like that. And we're getting really good at that. But we're primarily, we're wanting to get our data set really good right now. We want, we want to have every piece of public information that exists represented in our knowledge graph with high accuracy and reliability. And then once we're there, we can think about other things like what you're talking about. And then we want to make it today where it's more of like we want to serve the market of the knowledge worker right where they they don't need to be able to say hey diffbot they're maybe not a software engineer but they're able to write sql queries they're able to use an ex- spin an excel spreadsheet and they're able to use a bloomberg terminal so they're kind of they use knowledge in their day-to-day work and they're able they're willing to learn some kind of query language right in order to get that information right and that's what, what we're building out right now kind of the diffbot query language and we want to integrate that into all of the different software platforms that people currently use, right? So if you are an Excel junkie, we want to connect the knowledge graph to Excel. If you are a salesperson, we want to connect the knowledge graph to Salesforce, right? Or to your CRM. If you are someone who's like a financial analyst, right? We want to connect your, the knowledge graph to Tableau, to those tools that you can, 
that you actually use to, to do your data analysis. We didn't talk much about this last time, but Google like tried to do this, right? Or like, I don't know if they're still trying or maybe it's only on their back end or something. Like, why didn't Google build this? So I don't think they've exactly tried to build this business model, right, of offering kind of knowledge as a service. I think there's certain strategic reasons why they wouldn't want to do that because they don't want competition, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? oh, mean, yeah and, and, and they want, you know, and their main business is basically to monetize your attention, right, and, and to serve the advertisers, right? So they don't kind of want to provide you directly the answer. Mm, they actually want dangerous. to, they want to keep, they want to divert your traffic, to, you know, to the advertiser so they can get a, you know, a cut of that. So I think there's certain strategic reasons why they're not pursuing that business, but but, but technology-wise, absolutely, they've tried to build automatic web extraction before in the past. Um, they used to have a product called Frugal. I don't know if you remember that, where it was it was kind of like Google Shopping in the previous incarnation, but it was all based on automatically generated results, and uh, the quality of that was not very good. It was much worse than products that we have in the Diffbot Knowledge Graph. So it's just technically very tough. So. Because the quality wasn't good, they kind of scrapped that product. And then now they have um, what the current incarnation of Google Shopping basically has. Um, it's basically an advertising product where the merchants themselves provide the structured data to Google. So if you, if you want to get your products and stuff listed on Google Shopping, you provide like a feed, basically, you know, really? your, your catalog and you provide, you know, the prices and stuff. And so when you search on Google Shopping, you see there's only like a very handpicked list of like retailers on there. That you can buy from so it's a human curated product basically and then of course the other thing that uh, google is famous for is acquiring the company metaweb right which was basically there the um the creators of the freebase knowledge oh, graph yeah yeah and that's what eventually became these knowledge panels that google uses right so the way that metaweb is built the freebase product is basically not based on it's, it's primarily based on crowdsourced humans so it, the idea was let's make a something similar to Wikipedia, but where people are editing like the actual records, and then that was that's kind of what Freebase is. And then so when they acquired that company, they basically folded that in to their knowledge panels. So you'll see, you know, the vast majority of knowledge panels on Google are actually just Wikipedia pages, right? They're these head entities, celebrities, and stuff like that. Yeah. Most of the day-to-day -day entities you interact with, uh, your business partners, your vendors, your friends and family, uh, don't have knowledge panels, right? So. I think it's very limited in business application. It's, it's good for com consumer search when you want to target like the, you know, the Taylor Swift query or, or the Beyonce query because you have those celebrities, they have Wikipedia pages, you can show a nice panel for them. They're good for sports events and things like that, but it's not so good for actual business and getting things done and building like useful applications. And so when, after they acquired MetaWeb, they essentially shuttered Freebase uh, and removed it. And then they, and it's kind of as is their kind of MO, they, they just, you know, over time are just removing functionality from their APIs. Like there isn't even really the f a full-fledged Google search API anymore that you can use as a developer. Hmm. Really? Maybe once Google Cloud takes off, they'll get more into the API business. The business side of things, I think we also discussed this a little bit last time, but you've only raised a Series A, which I mean only, like it's still a lot of money. You know, plenty of businesses don't raise any money, but uh, you raised it in 2016. I'm sure you could have raised more by now, it seems like you're just not interested in 
moving really fast at the expense of perhaps impairing the capital structure that you've worked so hard to build. Is there, do you feel any temptation to just like raise a little bit more, run a little bit yeah, faster? I, I mean, I think it's, we're in, a, we're in a climate right now where it's easy to raise capital. So it's, it's always something, there's obviously that temptation there that you can always raise more money. But when I think to like the kind of companies that I see as like the really iconic companies, companies like Apple, like Microsoft, Google, they only raised a series A. They didn't raise a series B, C, D, because they really found their business after that first tranche of, of financing. And then uh, they were able to build lasting iconic companies out of it. And I think a company that's building a knowledge graph has to build a lasting institution. It can't be, uh, you know, I think we, recently we've seen a lot of companies that have raised lots of rounds of financing that ended up there not really being a solid business there, right? The financing was fueling the growth. Really. Or we don't know. Or we don't know, right? But at least the unit economics of those businesses are questionable, right? Of those companies that have raised like, you know, lots and lots of money and have, have very high valuations, right? So uh, at least to me, uh, the way I want to build a company is I want to build a company that is really fundamentally has really solid technology and good unit economics. I mentioned earlier, our margins are, are really good. There's only basically electricity and bandwidth at scale that we have to, to worry about in terms of costs. All the people that work at DiffBot are basically trying to just make the AI better, right? They're not actually serving like the API requests or anything like that, you know? They're not actually what the customers are paying for, right, to the, their services, right? It is, I think, can be a really big business at scale. And we want to move as fast as possible. And the main bottleneck isn't capital, at least not in my mind. It's actually the kind of expertise we need in order to make this these AI algorithms really accurate and to scale it. You know, we want to target, you know, like a trillion entities in the future. And we'll have to invent fundamentally new ways of storing data in order to get there. And I want to get there as quickly as possible, but it's more talent constraint rather than capital constraint. And it's specifically the talent constraint in these specific domains, these like narrow AI domains yeah. that I bet these people have offers from Google and Facebook and well, whatever. Well, the people at yeah, I mean, they could work anywhere they want in the world. There's just not that many people in the world that have built like a web scale crawler, right? You know, like our VP of search. Right. Even the people at Google, there's thousands of people working on the crawling team. No individual person knows how to build the entire Google crawler. Right. So we have those caliber of people that work at Diffbot and these certain areas of information extraction, natural language processing. These are research fields where we're really at the bleeding edge. So we actually partner with um, about a, a dozen or so different academic AI research labs and give them access to free access to our knowledge graph Ooh. to spur on more research to enable the PhD student that's in academia trying to study knowledge fusion or entity linking to successfully stay there, right? Instead of having to join a, a big company and use our knowledge graph and create faster advancement in that area, right? So that's kind of where I see the constraint of how quickly we can improve is, is, is that. It confuses me how few people know about DiffBot. Like I talk to developers all the time and I just don't understand why more people don't know about DiffBot. Yeah. Oh, we haven't, uh, we haven't uh, invested much in marketing or, or things like that yet. So 
it amazes me that people are even able to find our service right now and that we have like 400 <laughs> customers and are, are making it Wow, you're, you're really selling it, Mike. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how did you even figure, how did you get through like our onboarding process? No, actually... did, did, you ever, did you ever hear the quote? There's apparently a Larry Page quote. Like somebody asked him in the really early days of Google, like, why don't you, why don't you advertise Google? And he said, the longer it takes somebody to find out about Google, the better it'll be when people finally find it. <laughs> And so we actually don't care if people take a long time to find us. Yeah, we're not doing too many things to artificially kind of create, you know, a lot of visibility yet, right, with marketing dollars. But we have already plenty of great customers and partners that we work with right now that give lots of lots of feedback. I mean, we're we're trying to innovate as quickly as we can. So I, I see it really as where... We're supply constrained, right? Not demand constrained. You could hire like a really good CMO maybe. Have you thought about that? Yeah. I mean, we we eventually want to, it's just about focus, right? As an entrepreneur, right? Totally. But but no, I don't think, I don't think those two are, you know, like mutually exclusive at all. So we recently hired a VP of sales at our company. So before uh, it was just me, you know, kind of managing our three sellers. And I was able to do that maybe with about 10 or 20% of my attention, right? And also... I was working on um, some of our larger accounts as well as a seller. And, um, and so he, uh, now that he's joined maybe about a month or so uh, ago, uh, you know, things are running a lot more smoothly there. And then now basically I'm working for him because I, you know, I'm working on some certain large accounts. You think it's advantageous to take a little bit to delegate people? Like just, just wait and like kind of get yourself over as a CEO, like you just strain yourself a little bit to understand every domain of the business. And then when you really feel exhausted, that's when you hire. I feel like if you don't know anything about that certain job function, you won't know how to hire the right person yet. You know, like you won't know what to look for. You don't need to be, I don't think world-class at that thing, but I think you should at least have some experience trying to do it yourself first at least a little bit, you know, so that you know what you want and don't want, right? When you're looking to hire somebody. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think in, in software, it's it can be really particular. Like it's not, you know, selling accounting software is not the same as selling DiffBot. So even saying like, I want to hire a VP of sales, you just don't know what you're looking for until you try, until you try it yourself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you're right. It's like, finding a VP of sales that can understand DiffBot, right? And can, they're not going to be able to explain it to prospects and customers if they themselves can't understand like a pretty, pretty technical and complex product, right? And be able to translate that, you know, to a business person. And, you know, our, our new VP of sales, you know, has worked before at a, at a public developer tools company before. So uh, he has had experience selling like a pretty horizontal product that can be used for a lot of different purposes, right? And um, like a pretty technical sale. So in order to get and retain these super talented AI people, you must have like a pretty distinct culture. I mean, I would say so. I mean, I think our company culture is really one where if you are that super talented AI person, you know, your impact will be felt very directly inside the company, right? So if you consider like some of these other companies that have AI departments, right? And But they're like a consumer product. The AI part of it, only has some effect on the overall business, right? It's not a direct effect. There's other, if it's a consumer product, there's other, you know, things like uh, just like the, the, the winds of popularity and trends and, and the actual user interface and things like that, that, that affect how much impact you can really have, right? On that ultimate experience, right? But if you are working at DiffBot and you'd invent, you know, like a new, alg- a new way of representing language, right? Or a new way of, 
accurately taking a sentence and parsing out, you know, the subject, object, the predicate, and, and things like that, that directly results in the knowledge graph uh, tangibly becoming more accurate, allowing us to gather more facts, like the actual KPIs of the knowledge graph, the accuracy, the comprehensiveness, the depth, the freshness. Those are the things that our customers are paying for, right? So developing something new there, uh, not only is it a large application uh, and you're you know, you got a lot of impact because that code you write is executed billions of times per second, right? You're actually resulting in us being able to collect more money, basically, right? Because the, the service is now applicable to more people. And so that kind of, I guess, gratification, you know, is kind of pretty unique. And then I think also it's just like you're working for a CEO that himself is a researcher, right? So I, I really am working alongside them. I'm, I'm giving them advice on how to tune their algorithms. I'm myself developing my own machine learning algorithms. So I think that's like a pretty unique culture. Yeah, at our all hands meeting, we report on the actual machine learning metrics, right? So we care a lot about trying to increase the accuracy of each. We have about 50 or 60 different machine learning problems at Diffbot. We have a dashboard that tracks how accurate each one of those is every morning. And then, uh, you know, if you make some, some breakthrough in how language is represented, you'll probably cause uh, 40 of those metrics go up like the next, the next morning, right? So it's, it's hugely impactful to see that. We, we have a culture where also because of the caliber of people we hire, we give people a ton of autonomy. Like we don't actually tell people what to do when they join our company. We just give them a problem that to solve. We just identify these are the problems we're trying to solve. And then they tell us what to do basically, right? Because they are the expert in that area. Um, and then they're, they're free basically to work on any problem in the area of information extraction because those will ultimately benefit DiffBot. I can tell you really love what you do. And I feel the same way about what I do. I can sometimes become a little too obsessed with my business. Like I, I, I just I love it. I really love spending time on it. The last like year or so has really been a, an exercise for me in, in kind of like finding the balance between taking advantage of that obsession and um, and restraining it. Have, have you had to like make any like internal psychological tweaks to, to like restrain yourself at all? Or are you trying to do that? Or is it not it's, a problem? I mean, you? I think it's hard as an entrepreneur not to be thinking about your startup, your business all the time, basically, right? Like even if you're, even if you're not at work in the office, right? You're, it's on your mind. You're thinking about it. I mean, I think that you, you need to, I think you're right. You do need to strike a balance. Otherwise it's, it's really a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right. Um, and so, especially if you have an ambitious and long reaching mission like ours, you got to take care of your health, right? You got to find, you got to go out for a run, go work out. And so <laughs> you, I think one of the main reasons, uh, startups fail is because essentially founders aren't able to manage like their mental state basically. <laughs> I think and so, so, you, you, so mental health is really important. So you need to find ways to decompress and to keep a clear mind so that and socialize get, and socialize. Yeah. It's super important. I mean like the first year of software engineering daily, it was like in my apartment basically the whole time, yeah. like just like literally just like reading, you yeah. know, reading like, I'm like, Oh my God, I have an interview about Cassandra tomorrow. Like, I don't know how Cassandra works. You know, I'm just like reading documentation and just like going slightly insane, yeah. but not good. I mean, just not good. So what have you done to change that? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't have to read Cassandra docs anymore. You know like so I read it once. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of a cold start thing. Like, I mean, I don't know. Some people like they got the skills and they can like be balanced from day one. 
You might need to be a little unbalanced in the early days, but I don't recommend it. I don't know. I mean, I feel super lucky to have found something that I really enjoy and that I, I want to do, right? Like you think about so many people don't do that. Totally. That I, I can't complain about it. You know? Totally. No, no, it's not a complaint at all. It is just like you said, like finding the, the keys for longevity. A little bit about your, your background, and then I guess we'll, we, can, we can close off. So the patent attorney thing, like why did you learn to be a patent attorney? <laughs> it sort of just happened randomly. So I was in grad school. I'm trying to remember how it started. So a friend of mine, basically he was a patent attorney, right? And so he was just starting his own practice. He was moving out from a big patent law firm to just his own indie, indie practice, right? So he need, just needed some help initially to write body of a patent, basically, which is very technical. It's basically like writing a paper, right? The, the actual... The, the last part of the patent is the claims. That's where you need, you know, legal training to write those claims because the claims is basically a kind of like a legal programming language, right? It's a very specialized um, way of writing it. But the actual body of the patent is really just describing the invention. And so it actually needs somebody that has a technical degree, right? To understand it and to describe it accurately. So I started out just writing that part. So he had some some clients and then he would pay me basically a cut of it to, to write out that part. And then we had clients like uh, Panasonic. So I was writing, doing their like, I was doing their circuits. Uh, they were they were claiming certain patents around radio, uh, RF patents, uh, radio modulation algorithms and things like that. So I had to be able to understand what the engineer invented, basically transcribe it into a patent and then uh, part of being a patent attorney is you have to come up with uh, what's called the the alternative embodiments of the invention, right? So it's it's not just like what well, they designed, you know, invention A, but then maybe invention B and C that are uh, other ways of implementing that same idea so that a competitor can't just work around it, right, by doing like a, a, another way. So one of those alternative embodiments I remember that I came up with for the original circuit was actually what was used in production. It was like better than like the original design. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that kind of work because it was technology and technical and EE. And that was kind of like what I studied in my bachelor's, but it was also writing, right? Which, which I actually like. And it was also writing patent claims is a lot like programming. It's like a very specific, it's like you can, you can syntax check like patent claims, right? Cause they have to, it's almost like every thing that's mentioned has to have an antecedent in it. It has to follow like a very formulaic structure, right? So I like that aspect of it. And then, so over time from doing this kind of work for my friend, I was like, well, I know enough about um, what's needed here in writing the patent? I, I might, not, might not just go take the patent bar, right? So I just I just registered for it and then passed a bar, and so I got a, a registration number. And so the patent law is a little bit different in that um, it's national, right? It's not state. It's not like a state bar. So it's uh, it's all regulated by like Washington D.C. right instead of like California. So yeah, that's how I became. So is that easier than like the state bar kind of stuff that lawyers have to do? I think historically the pass rates are lower for the patent bar. I thought lawyers had to like barricade themselves in a library just to pass a bar. I mean, I basically, the way you study for the patent bar is basically you read um, this thousand page, several thousand page tome called like the, the MPEP, the Manual of Patent Examining Procedure. And that is basically the patent law. And so I just, I just read all the patent law. And then- Just end to end. End to end. Probably took me like a full week to read it all. And just then- Just one, once through. <laughs> yeah. I took a couple practice tests from before. And then, yeah, went into the testing center and took it. This was after Stanford? During Stanford? This is during. Yeah. During Stanford. Mm-hmm. Okay, just a nice yeah. side <laughs> side hustle, like during your research? Yeah, this is during, like, you know, I'd already taken all the coursework. So you, were just like, years look, you were looking for a way to make money, basically, right? <laughs> basically just a way to pay the bills, right? And to to, to fund my passion pursuing this, this, this different project. I mean, that kind of <laughs> sounds more fun than, like, taking a side job at 
Lockheed Martin or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the nice thing is the flexibility, right? So if, if you're a, a patent attorney and you have to basically write a patent, I got to a point where I, I got pretty good at it. I even had like certain uh, programs and macros I, I, I wrote that could generate like certain parts uh, of, of the patent. <laughs> and so I could basically pull all-nighters and, and crank out a, like an international patent over the course of like a weekend. And, you know, you could make 15, 20K, you know, from, from doing that. So that basically covered my rent for for a couple months in the Bay Area. <laughs> so as we close off, I think there's a lot of opportunity to build technology companies for developers, like just developer infrastructure, API companies, databases, whatever. You've built one. You've built a company basically targeted at developers that is really well positioned. Do you have any general advice for people looking to build a developer tooling company? Yeah. I mean, where to begin? I mean... First of all, I think developer tooling companies are great companies to build, right? Because you as an entrepreneur are so much in control of your destiny, right? Because I think that engineers and developers are pretty rational buyers. And if you're technical, you understand that audience, first of all, and you understand what the bar is needed to, to build a compelling technology, right? Or tool for your audience, right? So uh, that's totally under your control, right? And so... So you can start out very cheaply these days, building out a prototype uh, like we did, just launch on Hacker News, uh, get de other developers to test it out. And the nice thing about developer companies is you don't need salespeople at the very beginning, right? So developers don't generally like to talk to salespeople and that's not how they prefer to buy. As long as you have a website and you have a specific tool that solves a need and it's there's documentation and it's well described and it's really compelling, then people will find it, right? And then so you'll be able to... Um, to build a business out of it. Yeah, and the market's growing. Okay, Mike, well, I, okay, last question. Any any updates to the long-term vision of the company or you think it's been it's pretty much the same as it was last year? So the long-term vision of the company is to build the first complete map of human knowledge. And I mean, last year when we launched it, we basically have the largest knowledge graph now that's fully generated by an AI system that's actually available for people to use, right? And so our, our focus this year is not on just continuing to grow to size, but to, we really want to become the most accurate, uh, reliable, and trustworthy knowledge graph. We want to sort of start getting our name out there a little bit, start um, actually integrating our knowledge graph into the actual workflows and tools that people use out there, right, in the business and enterprise worlds. And so like kind of this year and next year is all about improving the accuracy and reliability and, and the integration strategy, like uh, integrating it into all these different pieces of software. And then what you can expect from us is we're continually going to be adding more and more entity types to our knowledge graph, interconnecting those with the other entities in our graph. So we're going to be rolling out some new types soon. I won't, I won't say which ones yet, but we're going to basically the graph, will, the knowledge that we have will become more and more complete, all these kinds of at some point in the near future, any public information that's about, uh, you know, a known entity, uh, some fact about it will be represented in our knowledge graph and programmatically accessible by an application. Beautiful. Okay, Mike, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here.